Welcome to the Second Chapter Podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy. I hope you're enjoying listening to my conversations with amazing women smashing it after 35 as much as I'm enjoying having them. This week, I'm speaking with Pam Munter, who proudly calls herself an outspoken advocate of living an unconventional life. In a time when it wasn't encouraged, Pam wanted to be something other than a teacher or nurse and has spent her life exploring a wide array of different careers. Her recent book, Finding Fame, Women of a Certain Age in Hollywood, talks about a time when Hollywood studio moguls tried to end the careers of actresses like Katherine Hepburn and Betty Davis, who had aged out of the profession they loved. I think that's one of the things that are changing, as you mentioned, is that women are in more of a position to help each other. There are women directors, women producers, and more importantly, women screenwriters for writing parts for older women. Hi, Pam. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Kristen. Nice to be here. Really nice to have you. I warned you before we got started, but I'm going to read back some of your life accomplishments. I hope that you don't mind me doing that, but I think it's a great way to start because you've done a lot. (laughs) Um, Pam's earned six higher education degrees and is a retired clinical psychologist, a singer slash recording artist, an author, an award-winning playwright, and an outspoken advocate of living an unconventional life. Um, Going back to this quote of living an unconventional life, one of the things you said about your past is that you grew up as an androgynous young girl, I quote, in the 1950s. So can we go back a little bit and talk about that? Sure. In the 1950s, women weren't people yet. Uh, A a girl was relegated if she was going to have a job at all, other than the most desirable thing, which was to get married and have children. You could be a teacher or you could be a nurse. That was it. No no higher aspirations allowed. My parents were very good about that. They didn't exactly pound it in my head, but it wasn't necessary because the culture supported that so strongly. You know, women weren't allowed to have their own checking accounts. They weren't allowed to have their own credit cards. They couldn't sign loans without their husband's co-signature. They couldn't own property on their own. I mean, it was a very different time. So someone like me who said, why is that? That just doesn't seem right somehow. People looked at me like I was some kind of alien being from another planet. It's like, well, that's just the way it is, Pam. You'll just live with it. But no, I I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so. And that whole attitude has got me in trouble a lot throughout my life. You know, when I was nine, I sent around a petition that girls should be able to play in the Little League. That was heretical. Girls didn't play organized sports. It's not feminine. I kind of got used to being an outsider. And that's not a bad place to be, actually. No, I definitely think the people that make trouble probably, first of all, have a bit more fun. Uh, but also, <laughs> they're ch- people like you are the ones who changed it for people like me, who I'm now trying to change it for the next generation that I think is seeing a lot of change. So yes. yeah, thank you for doing that. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. And as far as the androgynous thing goes, was it something that you just felt like you related more to what boys were getting to do? Or were you kind of just like, you know, I don't feel 100% comfortable with this girl label. The boys are the ones that had the most fun, really, when I was growing up. They could go out and play sports and run around and ride their bikes anywhere they wanted to go. And girls are supposed to sit home and play with dolls. I thought, man, why? What is that about? I never got that at all. The whole passive, uh, even now, just uh, my eyes are rolling. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't understand that. I, I was 
sensitive and feminine, I suppose, in that way. I had feelings. I wasn't a tough, macho kind of person. But I just wanted to be me. I, I didn't want to identify as a frilly, feminine, dainty doll. And I certainly wasn't a macho, knock-the-socks-off male figure either. I just was who I was. And I think you could probably still say that about me. <laughs> you know, I do what I want to do, not related to gender. So despite the fact that you were only told you could really be a teacher or a nurse, what did you hmm. do first? Where did your path go from childhood? Well, I wanted to be a movie star. <laughs> I didn't mess around. <laughs> I wanted to be famous. I grew up in, uh, in a suburb of Los Angeles, which wasn't too far from Hollywood. And uh, even though my parents certainly weren't anywhere near show business folk, nor were any of my neighbors, I grew up in a very middle class, kind of lower middle class neighborhood where wives stayed home and husbands went to work. But when I was five years old, my mother made a tragic mistake. She took me to a movie. And that was <laughs> from that point on, every chance I got, I wanted to go and see a movie. It didn't matter what it was or who was in it. I just fell in love with the movie. Every time I saw a movie star, particularly in the musicals, I thought, I could do that. Now, this was also the age, you have to realize, very different than now that there was this kind of fallacy that under certain conditions, you could be discovered. And people were. I mean, there's a Lana Turner was supposedly discovered at a soda fountain. Janet Leigh, another big actress of the time, was discovered when somebody at MGM saw her photograph in a window. I mean, these kinds of things did happen. And I believed all of it. So I would take buses into Hollywood, which was a long thing for a you know, 10, 12-year-old kid. And I'd walk back and forth on Hollywood Boulevard and Sunset Boulevard, and I'd walk around where the movie studios were thinking, okay, I'm here. Discover me. Yeah, you know, you're so lucky to have found me. <laughs> <laughs> I spent babysitting money going to lunch at the Brown Derby, which was a place where you could see movie stars. And I did. Thinking, well, some producer's going to come in and say, her, her, sign her right away. Don't let her finish her salad. Sign her up right now. <laughs> <laughs> that, of course, didn't happen. But what did happen was a lifelong love affair with Hollywood and show business. That never went away. I had, as you know, lots of other careers in the meantime here between writing about it, which I'm doing now, and performing, which I also did. I had a little time out of a quarter of a century being a shrink. Uh, one of my PhDs was in clinical psychology. And I taught at universities in a couple of different fields, political science and uh, psychology, for about 12, 15 years. And all of that, if you think about it, is very presentational. I was a ham, and that part just never left me. And when I left psychology, I thought, maybe now is the time to just jump into show business and see what's going to happen. I was smarter. I was older. <laughs> I had a little more resources to do that. And I took singing lessons. I took acting lessons. And uh, this was in Portland, Oregon, which is not exactly a bastion of Hollywood glamour, but it yes. allowed me <laughs> to do what I wanted to do. So I was in independent films. I had my own television show and started touring the country in jazz and cabaret shows and recorded a couple of CDs. And I was able to do what I'd wanted to do as a kid. Never got famous. I got to do it. And that was enough for me. I loved it. So going back to the psychology thing, you said you did it for about 25 years. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. 
And as part of that, one of the things you did was media psychology on TV, which I just thought was really interesting. I don't think I've met anybody who's done that yet. Talk to me about that a little bit. Well, I was teaching at Portland State University in Oregon, and I get calls every once in a while from local stations saying, can you come down to the station this afternoon? We'd like to ask you about something, whatever it was. The Portland Trailblazers, the basketball team, was just getting started, and they wanted some reaction to the trailblazer mania that was gripping the, the city <laughs> so, some kind of craziness you know so important uh, psychological issues oh yeah they needed me for that and uh, there were other things if uh, an actor a famous person got into trouble they call me up and ask me for a quote when waco happened all those people were killed in the waco situation mm-hmm. they called me up for a quote and I started doing uh, live television. And the local station called AM Northwest was looking for somebody to do that. And so every week or every couple of weeks, I'd get out of the station before my day began and do a, kind of a Q&A with the hosts on some psychological issue. I loved it. It was just perfect for me because I had the expertise and I certainly had the ham bone. There was no question about that. So that part never went away. Uh, It culminated in, I should say, when I left Cortland State, I stopped doing that because I was then full-time private practice and I didn't have time for a lot of that. But one of the the calls I did field, I got a call from Geraldo Rivera, who was uh, at that time on um, ABC's 2020, which is a highly rated show. It was Friday nights, I think. So this was back when he was a bit more, when he was a bit more of a respectable journalist versus, I know he went on to very glitzy show. Yeah, very right-wing station. Yeah, we won't get into politics. But in those days, he was well. more <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you. I would bail me out there. I had been testifying in court on the local cult, which became a national cult. And Geraldo wanted to talk to me about this cult. It was called Lifespring. It's now gone. It's morphed into other things. And so we came to my office, and we did a two-parter. And it was a little shocking. I had people sitting in the waiting room, and in comes this famous person with his camera crew. They were used to my being on television, but they weren't used to seeing somebody of that magnitude. So it was fun. And I gave the interview. Halfway through it, he said, can you say something a little more? And I said, what do you mean more? He said, well, more stronger, because I was very cautious about that. Being a licensed clinical psychologist, you don't mess around with opinions yes. like that too. So I said, okay, I'll try. And I said that it was, Life Spring was, I forgot what the quote was. It was uh, hazardous to your health, I think is what I said. Well, six months later, I was in my office and I got a subpoena. I was being sued uh, along with Geraldo Rivera and Rune Arledge and ABC at 2020 for about $100 million for these few comments oh I made God. on 2020. You can imagine my response. <laughs> what? What? $100 million? What? What does that mean exactly? I just had no knowledge. Well, there were, there were interviews with this and depositions, and I had an attorney. ABC found me an attorney after a lot of hassle. Went on for two years before they settled oh. for some very small amount in the settlement. It was very stressful. These people were cultists, and I didn't know what they were capable of doing, for starters. There was this $100 million thing sitting on my plate. What, $100 million? What? Do I have to sell everything? Do I you know, I jump off a building? What do I do here? <laughs> so that was, I, I did do a couple of more media things after that. But um, It's interesting, though, because I feel like some, a comment like that to say it's hazardous to your health, that's pretty... Uh, 
I would say that's pretty tame. It's not saying something really blasphemous. And you compare that to what you hear people saying that's completely, I won't get into politics at the moment, but I will say (laughs) people make claims way beyond that Jewish space laser that (laughs) I'm surprised something like that could even like wouldn't just be immediately dismissed. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the idea was to shut everybody down so nobody could talk about this organization anymore. And they'd certainly shut me down. My lawyer advised me not to make any more public appearances about this group until it was settled. And because it took so long, by the time it was settled, they had gone. They had left the Portland area and moved on, morphed into other more malignant organizations, I'm sure. But it was a shocking experience. Yeah, if somebody started talking to me about $100 million, I would just, (laughs) I can see why you panic a little bit. (laughs) Oh, yes. I don't have it. And for a while, I didn't have an attorney. I met a couple of times with an ABC guy, and I said, look, you've got to indemnify me. I don't have $100 million. I don't have a million dollars. I don't have any of that. You've got to cover me. And finally, after a period of time, they agreed to do that. But still, in and out of my office all the time with depositions, it was very disruptive to all of us. So did that kind of lead to the end of psychology, or did that just put a sort of wrench in the works in general? No, it was a temporary freak out. (laughs) uh, I had another, I don't know, maybe 15 years of private practice before I finally left. And I left very reluctantly. I loved being a psychologist. I love working with the people. I love uh, their generosity and letting me get into their lives and their heads and helping them get through things. It, it was a wonderful thing to be doing with my life. I loved it. But in the early 1990s, managed care started to take over the field of psychology and psychiatry. They're trying to save money. I, I appreciate that. But it, what happened was that every time I would see somebody, I would have to be on some approved list of providers. So I didn't have a mm. choice of who I saw. So someone would come into my office. I'd have to diagnose them formally, which I never did in my practice normally, fill out a bunch of paperwork, send it off to some godforsaken place in the United States, and they would decide how many sessions I could have. And usually it was, I don't know, two or three, which is ridiculous because I was doing long-term, in-depth psychotherapy. And two or three sessions, that's just barely enough to <clears throat> get into a person's history. So as the time wore on, I began to feel almost unethical doing that. It seemed like slapping a Band-Aid on people's major psychological issues. And I started to plan my escape. It took about a year. I I started letting people know that I was ending the practice. People were very dear about it. They'd say, are you okay? Are you sick? Are you dying? Are you, you know, what happened? I'm fine. I'm sorry I have to do this, but this is something I need to do to take care of my own mental health would be to get out of right now. So I did. I closed up the office and it was over. It's just such a shame because I remember similarly this was for like physical therapy for injury and things. And obviously Mm -hmm. with an injury, you might have more of 
an end game. I need to strengthen my glutes so I can run again or whatever that is. But even something like that to say, oh, you can do that in six sessions or three sessions or whatever. And I remember under the US healthcare system being told your insurance will cover five sessions or whatever. And Mm -hmm. yeah, especially something like mental health, I can't imagine saying, right, you have to have a diagnosis because obviously mental health isn't always diagnosable. And I can't imagine then saying, cure it, (laughs) because it's not always a cure. Yeah, Yeah. it just made me crazy. I couldn't do it. These were people, in many cases, I had seen three generations in their family. And we were practically like family. We'd known each other so many years. And I'd seen them through all kinds of major traumas and crises and helped them find out who they were and what they wanted to do and what mattered to them and all those things that we need to find out to be comfortable with ourselves. And then all of a sudden, they join a different insurance plan because of work situations right. or whatever. And that way, maybe cut off. You know, insurance wouldn't cover it anymore. It's very sad. It is sad. It's really sad, especially if somebody was in a real crisis and you just had to say, sorry, if you can't, you know, that's the end of it. Yep. So once you left psychology, is that when you entered an MFA? No, that's when I entered showbiz. Oh, man, that was that was quite a dive off the high board into the deep end. I had no idea what I was doing, of course. But because I was older, people thought I had been around forever doing this. So I would be hired at jazz clubs in New York and San Francisco and L.A. and whatever to do my cabaret show. And people expected that I'd be good. I hoped I was, but... Fingers crossed. (laughs) Exactly. That's about it. I, you know, there were no role models really. I did it because I loved to do it. I, you know, created sort of a a jazz trio on each coast and a publicist on each coast. And a lot of traveling actually is what did me in, I think. Yeah. You hear that about anybody who does a lot of touring that it just becomes, I love doing it but I just want to be home in my own bed sometimes or getting on a plane or getting on a bus or whatever that is just becomes too much. Well, and relationships are very hard to sustain when you're away from home for long periods of time. And I started to worry. I needed to be home. Yeah, that's fair. But as part of your cabaret act, one of the things you did was a Doris Day tribute. I did. Doris (laughs) and I go way back. The first movie I ever saw was her first movie, which was called Romance on the High Seas. And I I imprinted like a duckling (laughs) imprints on its mother. There was something about Doris Day that just gripped me. And so as a kid, you know, I I listened to all her records. I sang with all her records. We were singing in the same key, which was lovely. Every time she was in a movie, I was there every night. I was just in love (laughs) with this with her character. Of course, I didn't know who it really was. The neighbor across the street from me worked for her husband, which I found out later. And I thought, why didn't they help me meet Doris Day? They knew I had this tremendous love for her. Why didn't they help me meet? Well, they, of course, they didn't. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take care of this myself. I'm going to figure out a way to meet her. I knew where she lived, Movie star maps. Thank you. Yes. I always wonder if they're real. <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. They were then. I don't know if they are now. And I loaded up a sort of a boyfriend person to come with me because I was afraid to do it myself. We took all the buses into Beverly Hills where she lived. I had bought her a birthday present. Of course, I knew what her birthday was, obviously. And obviously. bought her some Tootsie Rolls <laughs> because she loved Tootsie Rolls. So I wrapped them up, walked up to her door, which you could do in those days. Of course, you can't now very different times. And knocked on the door. 
Her son answered the door. I recognized him, of course, from movie magazines. I said, hi, I'm here to give your mother a birthday present. I said, okay, you know, wait a minute. He was very surly and slammed the door on me. I thought, what's that? I suppose I can leave it on the doorstep. You know, that would be okay. A few minutes passed and the door opened. It was her. She was standing right there. <laughs> Just, I almost fainted. I thought I was going to die right then and there. She was very kind, I must say. She, I don't know how many people came to her door, but <laughs> I did. And she thanked me. You did. <laughs> I did. I, I would say that this is act one of my thing with Doris, because you mentioned the cabaret show. I also recorded a CD of uh, some of the songs from the cabaret show. I recorded it at Capitol Records, which is another whole saga. But the producer who did the CD said, you should send this to her. Oh, man, she's going to be really angry that I've done this. I used some of her arrangements. You know, I had strings. I had backup singers. It was quite elaborate. I thought, she's not going to like this. But I did it. I sent it. Well, a couple of weeks later, I got a letter in the mail from Doris Day. And it was almost like a fan letter. I was just beside myself. I had spent <laughs> all these hours in my childhood listening to her in my bedroom, you know, singing with her. And now she was sitting in her house listening to me. Come on. It's just blown away. That is like a dream come true. Oh, Somebody that you yeah. just admired, loved your whole life, and then to think that they now know your work exactly. and like it. Ah! Her comments were so generous, too. Very kind. I loved it. I have it framed, of course, in my house. Of course. Yes, obviously. So performing, recording this CD, but you did eventually go for an, for an MFA. What pulled you to start studying as opposed to just continuing with the path that you were on? I had been writing lengthy pieces about old, usually dead movie stars, more obscure movie stars, for some of the uh, like classic images and films of the Golden Age magazine for, I don't know, about five years or so. These are people I was curious about that I wanted more information about. And so I would, they were quite lengthy, you know, nine, 10,000 word essays, which they publish about people that will likely be forgotten, but shouldn't be. And I ran mm. out of ideas, really, of people to write about, and I missed the writing. And I saw an ad in the local paper, believe it or not, for a new program. It was an MFA, uh, low residency. So I didn't have to go away to campus, as I always had before. And it was local. It was just you know a few miles from me. So I thought, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take a couple classes. That'd be fun, just to get the juices flowing again. So I met with a director and said, you know, I just want to take a couple of classes. And he said, I'm sorry, you can't do that. I said, well, why is that? Well, it's a program. If you're going to do it, you have to do the whole Megillah. It's about two and a half years. This is it or nothing. So I thought, what else am I going to do with my life at this point? I was at a crossroads. So I, I was fortunately admitted into the program as a nonfiction major and uh, started to work on personal essays about my life, uh, memoir stuff. And then I was into that and I was told that I had to have a second genre. Uh, there were few options, really. I mean, all I ever wrote and read was nonfiction. I never read anything else. Really. I read plays, you know, that was because I had been an actor. So I thought, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? Let me see. Screenwriting? No, I couldn't see myself writing sci-fi, superhero dramas for teenage <laughs> boys. That's right. Not my thing. Would it be poetry? That's just a little too precious for me. I just couldn't quite... 
imagine myself as a poet. So the only option left was fiction. But man, am I in trouble. Big trouble. I don't read it. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> I don't know anything about it. I don't know how to do it. And the director, who was wonderful, it still is, uh, said, well, let me teach you. Okay. Okay, we'll start by writing a story. Well, <laughs> I don't know how to do that. Then it occurred to me, I have all this Hollywood history in my head from all the years of reading and studying Hollywood. Why not take some of those stories, mess with them a little bit, and morph them into something even more interesting than what they actually were? And boy, they were pretty mm -hmm. interesting. And so I started, I wrote my first one, which is about Mary Pickford, who was America's sweetheart in the 1920s, and yes. her screenwriter, uh, Frances Marion, who was also her best friend at the time. And it was so well received in class that somebody in the class said, you know, you ought to write more of these. I bet there's a lot of Hollywood history out there that would be fun to read about. I started to think about that because I knew I'd never read a novel. That was just so far beyond my capacity and interest that a series of short stories was sort of like a series of essays I had written in my, for my memoir. It took years. I started to put them together, and out came the book that was just published recently called Fading Fame, Women of a Certain Age in Hollywood. All the women I wrote about were of that certain age. It aged out of Hollywood, basically. Too old. Nobody wanted it. And at that point, you were, when you started school, or when you started your MFA, you were one of two students over 60 at that point. Yeah. You were definitely doing something that isn't very traditional yet again, but not very traditional at over 60. That's true. So you're of a certain age, writing about women that have started to become of that certain age. I knew about that. Now, I wasn't a celebrity, but you know, when you go to the market and the people say, can I help you out with that, dear? You just want to smack them. You know, I'm perfectly capable of carrying my own groceries, thank you. I'm not that old. I still work out in the morning. And, Come on, give me a break here. The people in the program were all, they were very nice. I guess it wasn't quite as traditional where you were, like you said, you were at campus every day, but did you find that you could have the kind of camaraderie that a typical aged student would have? Or were there any difficulties about being over 60 and doing the program? No, not really. I, what I missed was I had taught in universities for years and I expected to find peers among the faculty and that didn't happen. The faculty was all younger also, you know, 30s and 40s. And what happened was interesting. I'm not sure I would have willed it this way, but it was an okay adjustment. I started publishing right away uh, the first year I was in the program, and, and I had many publications, uh, essays, memoir essays. And that's mm -hmm. not a traditional thing to have happen with students. You know, they, they struggle. I didn't struggle. I just sent something out and it got published which was lovely. But I started being seen as different because I had been so prolific. And in fact, when I graduated, they had this you know, sort of faux ceremony with piped-in pomp and circumstance. <laughs> the director of the program commented on my being prolific. That was what it was all about. She writes soup cans, she writes cereal boxes, she writes recipes. She writes, well, of course I didn't, but he was trying to be funny. But there was, that was distancing, I think, for me and the other students. That having happened to me so quickly, it pushed me apart from some of the people. People would come to me and say, how do you do that? I would just look at them blankly. Hey, I don't know. I mean, I sit down at the computer and there's a topic in my head and the, the first sentence comes to mind and out it comes. That's not a very popular process <laughs> in MFA programs. <laughs> <laughs> Teach me, though, no, because I just yeah. do it. 
Sorry. That's, yeah, uh, I was willing to help people edit their work. I'm good at that. But I couldn't tell them how to generate the process because that's so internal. You hear the writers that say, I have to get up at five every morning and write for two hours. And that's all I do all day. And you hear people that uh, say, I don't write for months on end and something's brewing. And everybody has a different process. So that makes sense. That's right. I had a different process with fiction because it was so different for me. The, the nonfiction essays I just spilled out. I mean, they just, once I had a topic or an idea, there were many essays that just fell out of my computer quickly, within a day or two. The fiction, even though I knew pretty much who I was writing about and the ideas, came as I went. I'm not sure how to put that differently. It wasn't an easy flow. And the plays, which I also started to write, wrote themselves because I let the characters tell me what they were going to say and do. That was fun. I said, okay, what are you going to do now? Here's a problem. What are you going to say to this guy? <laughs> and I just repeat on the keyboard what the conversation they were having with each other. Very different process. One of the reasons that you're here today is because when I did read about finding fame, women of a certain age in Hollywood, it really hit home for me as somebody who came into acting a bit later. And my whole, everything I'm doing now is around really telling stories when we start being told we're supposed to disappear. You've written these fictionalized accounts, but I don't want to say truth is stranger than fiction, but the truth is not that far a lot of times from what I think your fictionalized writing is saying about Hollywood, about aging. Yes, that's true. What's your favorite story from the book? One of the stories is, of course, about Doris Day. It's well known in people who follow her or it that her money was stolen by her late husband. She lost well over $20 million that he siphoned off without her knowledge over the course of their marriage. And she didn't know about it until he died. Now, that's a story. I don't need to tell that story. What I wanted to tell was, how did she react to that? Who told her, for starters? Who gave her that news right. that would be so devastating? And how did she square that with 18 years of marriage with this man, who was her manager, in addition to her husband. What did she do about it? That's the story. So that was irresistible. <laughs> I had to write about that. Yes. My favorite story, I think, is the one about Irene Selznick. She was the eldest daughter of Louis B. Mayer, who was the man who ran MGM for years, one of the founders, mm -hmm. and until MGM really went into the ground, he was the mastermind, the lecherous mastermind, I might add. He had two daughters. Irene Selznick married another lecher, <laughs> David Selznick. They were eventually divorced. But my story takes place because Louis B. Mayer has invited his two grown daughters to their home in Bel Air, just for a family get-together. Irene mm. likes she's in New York because she's has just produced a famous play, which in fact was the case. She also has some news for her father and the family. She has just written a memoir about this family who has been secretive and furtive and predatory <laughs> for years. And I love the story partly because she confronts him, and I love that, and he family confrontation is appealing to me, and the history, because these people yes. actually did exist. Now, I know that they never had that dinner. I don't really know what the inside of the Biller house looked like, but I knew what the outside looked like because I could Google it, and I knew the character of these people. So that was just enormous fun to write. It was the absolute epitome of blending history 
with fiction. So when you write something like that, especially when people are lecherous and obviously you are in the fiction world, drama is conflict. So you're giving them conflict. You're giving them things that maybe are based in history, but never happened. How do you do yes. that so that people aren't coming after you for $100 million again? <laughs> <laughs> there are two, two ways to answer that. One is that they're all of them that I wrote about actually are, are dead. But they're also the ones I've named, and I didn't name everyone. These stories are 10 stories, and I think only half of them have recognizable names. But they're all public figures, and the libel law protects you when you comment on a public figure because the law says you're out there, you're putting yourself out there, you're fair game. Oh, yeah. Wow, that does really drive home some things that have just happened with public figures where they have had not fictional stories written about them, much worse things happen. And of course, it's always that's what you've agreed to, because you want to mm -hmm. be an actor or someone famous, I guess. Well, the stories that are coming out about Diana, for instance, are like that. If she were alive, she would sue them all. But she probably couldn't because she was, of course, the epitome of a public figure. Her every move was chronicled by the press. Yes, yes, obviously. It ended in tragedy that way. Yes. But the fictional stories are really interesting. And I love that you are making this commentary on what it means to be a certain age and that each one of them has this sort of, yeah, this is what happens when you become, I think you said in, in an interview, flotsam and jetsam in Hollywood. Mm, yes, yes. You know, they make it, some of them make it on the casting couch because that was the way to do it back then. That was expected of young women. And when they're no longer, I won't use the word, but in, interested in sex with older, unattractive men, they're, what do they do about that? They aren't cast in films. We can name women of a certain age who are still doing well, but you can do it on one hand. Yeah. They aren't going anywhere. They're playing the same kinds of parts over and over again because they're old. And that's how public and the studio executives see them. They're past their prime. I do think it's changing. But I just said this uh, on a panel the other day, but there was a joke that Amy Poehler and Tina Fey made about Meryl Streep being nominated for an award. And they said, and of course, tonight we have Meryl Streep, who's been nominated. And that just goes to show that there are still parts in Hollywood for Meryl Streep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. That's it. Full stop. Pretty yeah. much. Actually, I'm really um, amazed by Frances McDormand at this point, because I think oh, yeah. she is yeah. really yeah. subverting what we think parts for older women could be and right. being recognized for it. So hats off right. to her and to people that are actually casting her in these roles, because that gives me hope for the future. I think that's one of the things that are changing, as you mentioned, is that women are in more of a position to help each other than we ever mm -hmm. were. Because there are lots of women in sort of secondary positions. They're vice president in charge of blah, blah, blah. There are women directors, women producers, and more importantly, women screenwriters who are writing parts for older women. And I think that's where the change is going to happen. Even Doris complained in her old age that she would love to come back on the screen, but there weren't any good parts for older women. And she was right. There aren't many even now. But it's just it's getting better. I started out by saying all of these different things that you've done. And I would definitely say the advocate of living an unconventional life is absolutely true. I want to move now to a quote that I know you brought for me, because I think it really sums up all of these things you've done throughout your life. It's from George Bernard Shaw. So uh, life is not about finding yourself. Life is about 
creating yourself. And I've long felt that it is my responsibility to mine my own self, to be all I can be, to create my own life, to decide what works for me, what's important for me to do and be, and not leave that to someone else's opinion. I love that you said elsewhere as well, use yourself up, do all you can to give yourself away. Because I think if there's one thing that somebody could say about me, hopefully many years in the future and some sort of obituary, I just want them to be like, she did everything, everything that she wanted to do, everything she could do. The reason she's now died at 110 is she exhausted herself. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I think every time I talk to somebody on this show, for very different reasons, they've changed what they've done. They've changed whether it's their job or their life or something about their life has changed. And when it's been something that's been especially voluntary, it's because they said, why am I not doing what I want to be doing? Or why am I staying in something that's making me miserable? And I'm just amazed at all of the times you've made those changes and you're, you're making them work for you. Well, thanks. I left mostly because I felt I had done all I could do. It wasn't that I ran out of gas, per se, or that there were negative things that happened. It was time to go on to something else, to see what else I was capable of of achieving, of accomplishing, of experiencing. I'm sure we could go on forever because of the long list of things you've done, but is there anything else that you want to tell us about today? Oh, yeah, I'm just delighted to have been with you here today, Krista. This has been such fun and a pleasure to meet you and to hear what you want to know. That's always interesting, too. Honestly, what I want to know is what drives people to do the things they do. And if there's one statement, it's tell our stories, because I think we all have such interesting stories to tell, and especially as we get older, they don't go away, they get more rich. And I look forward to seeing more books from you and continuing to hear about your adventures. Well, thank you. I very much appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining me today. You bet. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. I really hope you're enjoying the second chapter podcast. And if you are, please share it with a friend. I think we all know by now, sharing is caring. Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.